perhaps there really was no other way out. He was going to continue chasing her for the rest of her life. Nothing she'd done had made any difference. And now, he'd hit her where it hurt the most. He'd harmed her family. As she punched the seatbelt button and it released, she looked at her mother one last time, and then opened the car door. She would not give him the pleasure of cowering from him again. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 122, The Murder of Leandre Jurgels. In many of the cases I discuss on the podcast, we see how young South Africans struggle significantly with social and economic hardships. So I was excited to come across the podcast that's sponsoring today's episode. Change in One Generation is a new podcast series about young South Africans rising above hardship and adapting to change. The show is hosted by legendary journalist Ruda Lantman and leadership expert Dr. Frank Magwegwe. Subscribe to Change in One Generation on Apple Podcasts, Google Play or Spotify or go to changepodcasts.co.za for more information. Since 2019, True Crime South Africa has been telling the stories of the victims of violent crime in South Africa. The podcast is independent. That means no big or even little corporates fund it. And that's just the way I like it. And it's the only independent podcast in South Africa that consistently charts in the top 10. Keeping a podcast like this going is time-consuming, and for the most part, it remains a one-woman process. It's me. I'm the one woman. You, yes you, are the reason this podcast continues to flourish and help bring in tips on missing person and cold cases. If you'd like to help keep the show running, please consider supporting our sponsors, signing up to Patreon or PayPal, follow the show on the socials, as the kids say, and share it with your fellow partners in crime. You can find our social links and learn more about our sponsors at True Crime South Africa forward slash donate. Shout out to this week's Patreon and PayPal superstars. A huge thank you goes out to Mary Ann Elizabeth Johnson, to Lucia Fenter, Karen Jardine, Monique Kutsia, and Razan Davids for your support on Patreon. Thank you so much, everyone. Patreon supporters get one additional exclusive episode a month, a shout out on the pod, and other exclusive contents, including Q&As with me as and when it's available. It's a minimum of $1 a month. I think you should do it. Please. And thank you. Keba. I've covered a lot of intimate partner violence cases on this podcast, and they are all unnecessarily and horrifically tragic. But somehow, this week's case just feels even more unbelievable and probably unfairly so. I think it's because 
we're all still fed this line about the stuff we can do to protect ourselves. Those things we hold on to, like get a protection order, learn how to defend yourself, cut off all contact, etc., etc. But what happens when you do all of those things? You tick every item off the how to protect yourself from being savagely slaughtered by your loved one list. And none of it makes any difference. What then? What happens when the very people we are told to turn to, who will serve and protect us, are the ones that turn around and kill us? I will admit that this week's case has made me feel a little hopeless. Because if the woman I'm about to introduce you to could not protect herself, then I have no idea how much hope the rest of us have. I realize this is a seriously terrible way to start an episode, and maybe I'll feel a little differently by the end. And maybe you will too. In researching this case, I used an episode of Orpsia Sespoor, as well as several media articles about the case. So, let's get into episode 122, The Murder of Leandre Juchels. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Leandre Jochels was pretty special from the day she was born. Of course, all humans are. But Leandre was born prematurely in 1994 when her mom Rita was just seven months pregnant. From the first moment she gasped a breath of air, Leandre was set on a path to beat the odds. The nurse who cared for her when she spent two months in the neonatal intensive care unit told her parents, this child is one of the strongest fighters I have ever seen. And although she could have no idea when she spoke the words over that tiny infant, that is exactly what Leandre would become. Leandre grew up with her mom Rita, dad Ansel, and sister and brother in the Eastern Cape. The fragility of her first months on earth was soon cast aside, and almost as soon as she could walk, Leandre started participating in sport. And... She excelled at almost everything she tried. Athletics, swimming, hockey. In her early primary school years, people warned her parents not to hold out much hope for the young sports fanatics academics, because she would surely be far more interested in extramurals. But the Andre proved them wrong there too. She did just as well in her schoolwork as she did in sport, and she was always a top student. When Leandre was nine, she took up a new sport, karate. And while many parents put their young children into karate to learn self-discipline, Leandre already had that in bucket loads, so she immediately began to excel at the sport. Throughout her primary and high school years, she took part in karate tournaments both in South Africa and internationally. 
Leandre's goal had always been to represent her country in a sport. And in her high school years, she would get that chance with karate. She earned her black belt, the highest level of achievement in the discipline, and was the South African karate champion for four years consecutively from 2009 until she matriculated in 2012. There was simply no stopping the young woman. But it wasn't all easy for her either. In her later teen years, Leandre was diagnosed with clinical depression. And although her sport helped her to work through the mental illness, she would go through cycles of depression where she needed to step back for months at a time and focus on her mental health. Her family stood by her and supported her through all of this. And when she matriculated and decided to go to the University of Forte to study toward a Bachelor of Science degree aimed at eventually becoming a teacher, they thought that this would be pretty much the perfect career for her. She had so much inspiration and mental fortitude to share with young people that she undoubtedly would have been an incredible teacher. Leandre continued to train in karate while she was in university, but soon her eyes were drawn to another sport. When she was 20, she began training as a boxer. Women's boxing has become more and more popular across the world, and although there's still a long way to go for female fighters to get the same support as male fighters, the segment is booming, and Leandre quickly fell in love with the sport. And I probably don't have to tell you that she also soon excelled at it too. Promoters and coaches realized that they had an incredibly talented fighter on their hands. And as Leandre got ready to graduate from university with her degree, oh, and by the way, she graduated with seven distinctions, her boxing career was taking off. Leandre would go on to fight in the bantamweight division and soon fought in a string of fights, undefeated. Her manager recalls one fight against an Argentinian opponent, which was supposed to run for 10 rounds, and ended after the first round, with Leandre, who was by then fighting under the nickname Baby Lee, sending her opponents to the hospital with a cracked rib. In 2017, her manager took her to Las Vegas to experience the boxing mecca, and she met boxing legend Floyd Mayweather and got to train with him for a day. Her manager says that the experience drove her even more to excel in the sport, and it was one of her proudest moments. Leandre's career and sporting achievements were blooming, and her parents say she never really bothered much with romantic relationships. She felt that she would meet someone when the time was right, and she preferred to put her energy into teaching karate, and boxing. In 2018, a combination of boxing world politics and a bout of depression saw Leandre stepping away from professional boxing for a while with a view to returning to the ring professionally in October 2019. She would never get that chance. Leandre had continued to train daily and still spent a lot of time practicing karate at the dojo she'd grown up in, and it would be there that she'd meet the man who would completely change the trajectory of her life. 
37-year-old Bulelani Manyakama had been hanging out at the same dojo as Leandro for a while. He was 12 years her senior and a member of the SAPS's tactical response team in East London. Tactical response units were created in the South African Police Service in 2009 and were one of the few units to survive the culling of most specialised units within the SAPS a few years later. The unit is pretty elite, with members being put through rigorous training and receiving specialised skills that most officers are not taught. The unit is deployed in special crime situations, including those where immediate crowd control is required. They also get involved in manhunts for particularly dangerous criminals and other covert operations. What started out as a friendship between Bulelani and Leandre, with him allegedly supporting her through episodes of depression, soon blossomed into a romantic relationship. Leandre's sister was one of her first family members to meet Bulelani, and she said she didn't get any bad feelings about him at first. But when he came to her house for the first time and met her husband, he told her right away that he didn't want the man in his house ever again. She was shocked and asked why, and her husband said he simply didn't like Bulalani, and he strongly felt that he was going to mistreat Leandre and might even be violent with her. Leandre's parents, Rita and Anselin, had an even stronger reaction to their meetings with Bulelani. The huge age difference was a major problem for them, especially since their daughter hadn't really had any other serious relationships, and they were concerned that the power dynamic would be too far out of balance with the age difference added in. Anselin says that Bulelani was far too much of a smooth talker for his liking. He seemed to have an answer for everything. And then he said one very specific thing one night that to Bulalani seemed like a throwaway comment, but stood out to everyone else there and would later haunt Leandre's family. Speaking about his job, he said, I've been trained to kill people and I feel absolutely nothing when I do it. It does appear that Leandre and Bulalani lived together very briefly during their relationship, and I couldn't put an exact point on when the physical abuse started, but it escalated very quickly when it did. Leandre's mother described some of the more severe incidents, such as when Bulalani kicked Leandre until she fell to the floor and then stood on her head. He also regularly knocked her head into the wall when he attacked her. The psychological abuse and threats were even more terrifying to Leandre, though. He made it very clear to her that if she ever left him, he would not let her have a moment's peace. He specifically told her that he would stalk her, and when Leandre decided to call it quits with him, that is exactly what he did. Leandre's mom and dad recall how from that moment they made sure that their daughter didn't go anywhere alone. Whether she was going to the gym or the supermarket, one of them always accompanied her. The fiercely independent young woman was frustrated by having to do this, but it also brought up another fear 
that Bulalani had installed in her. He knew how much she loved her family, and he'd often told her that if he couldn't get to her, he would get to them. Eventually, Rita and Anselin convinced their daughter to take out a protection order against Bulalani. Until that point, she'd been hesitant to do so, because she was sure it would only trigger him further, and she was concerned that his job as a police officer would make it difficult for her to get an order against him, whether or not that was the official story. And sadly, it seems she was not entirely wrong. On the day Leandre and her mom applied for the order, police officers at their local police station seemed hesitant to serve the order on Bulalani. Rita overheard an officer on the phone to him, telling him she didn't want to embarrass him in public, so he should come to the police station so he could be served. The officer then told Rita and Leandre that Bulalani was on his way, and they should wait so that they could serve him while they were there. Leandre was horrified and asked how they could force her to face him. She told her mother that she had no doubt that Bulalani would kill them in the police station in front of his colleagues without a second thought, and they had to get out of there before he arrived. Although the officers protested, both women fled, deeply disappointed in the treatment they had received. Bulalani was eventually served the protection order, and just as Leandre had feared, it did only make things worse. Now, this is known to happen, and I don't want to discourage anyone from applying for a protection order because of this possibility. In the vast majority of cases, it is far better to have the legal record of your fear of a person rather than none at all. And oftentimes, it will make the person think twice about harassing you. But I do think that there should not be a false sense of security that comes with that piece of paper. It is an important legal step. And essentially what it does is help you to get police to respond more quickly and effectively than they otherwise might. But it does not serve as a shield against violence. And victims of abuse or stalking should definitely know that there is always a possibility that the abuse and harassment may actually escalate after the perpetrator is served. Bulalani did what many abusive people do when they are served protection orders. He took out one of his own. Now, it's very likely that he was only able to get a temporary order, and he must have lied significantly to the magistrate when he did so, perhaps claiming that Leandre was violent because of her karate and boxing skills, or maybe that she was harassing him in some way. None of that, of course, was true. All she wanted to do was get on with her life. Despite her own less-than-ideal experience around her protection order against Bulalani being served, her parents say that when Bulalani took out his against her, the procedure seemed very different. Leandre had left East London for a little while when this was happening, but on a Friday night, a hammering came at her parents' front door. When her dad answered, four heavily armed police officers demanded to see Leandre. They said they had a protection order they needed to deliver to her. 
Anselin told them she wasn't in East London and she'd only be back the following week. But they didn't seem to believe him because they proceeded to come back another two days in a row. All three times her parents said the officers were extremely aggressive and they were always heavily armed. They wondered how it was possible that they suddenly had so many resources to dedicate to delivering a protection order when Leandre's own experience had been so different. In previous cases I've covered in which police officers have protection orders taken out against them for domestic violence, the officers' firearms have been taken away from them while the order is in place. They may use it while they're on duty, but they cannot take their firearms home with them. The fact that those cases made it onto this podcast, though, should already tell you that this only vaguely enforced rule rarely actually protects anyone, as those officers found ways around that, and so did Bulilani Manyakama. In fact, although the details of the IPID investigation that would eventually be led into this case have never been publicly revealed, as far as I can see, it doesn't actually seem that this highly trained police officer was ever stopped from having access to firearms at all. And on the 30th of August 2019, all the freedom he'd been given and all the failures to protect Leandre came to a head. Rita recalls that on that Friday afternoon they were headed to the gym. Leandre had returned from P.E., and things had been pretty quiet as far as Bulalani's terror tactics were concerned, so she remembers that they were actually quite relaxed that day. Leandre was in an upbeat mood and had been filming herself dancing to music in front of a mirror. Rita had smiled at her daughter and told her to send her the video because she wanted to send it to the rest of the family, to see just how happy she was. Everyone in the Yechel's family had been negatively impacted by Bulalani's behavior in the prior months. They'd all lived in fear and were very concerned that the man would drive Leandre into deep depression. It was nice to see her have a light-hearted moment for a change. Leandre and her mom set out that afternoon for the gym in Leandre's White Golf. Rita says that with things having calmed down in the prior days, they didn't look around them much, but as they were driving, they noticed a Mercedes-Benz driving very close behind them. Rita looked in the rearview mirror and couldn't quite make out the face of the driver. They also didn't recognize the car and weren't immediately alarmed. Rita thought perhaps the driver behind her was just in a hurry, so she moved over into the left-hand lane to let him pass, but he didn't. He pulled back in behind her. Rita sped up, and the car did too, and they soon realized it was Bulalani. A man in a taxi that day would be an eyewitness to the first part of this three-part tragedy. He said that he saw a white golf making a U-turn in the road, and a Mercedes behind that car doing the same. It was heading into rush-hour traffic on a Friday, so the roads were pretty busy, but Rita was now doing her best to escape from Bulalani. Unfortunately, the witness describes that there was simply nowhere to go, 
and the golf came to a halt in traffic. He then saw the man in the Mercedes get out of his car and very calmly walk up to the golf. Bulelani Manyakama fired three shots into the driver's side of the vehicle. All three shots hit Rita Yechels. One entered just below her eye and exited the opposite side of her face. Instinctively, she floored the accelerator and somehow managed to weave her way out of the traffic jam. Bulelani walked back to his car, got in and gave chase. Rita describes how Leandre was screaming at her to pull over so she could take over driving, but she knew she couldn't because Bulelani would undoubtedly catch up. Rita continued on for several kilometers before her vision eventually started to blur and she realized she was putting everyone's lives in danger. She pulled over onto a grass patch. Leandre watched as Bulelani pulled the Mercedes-Benz in behind them and got out of the car. Rita could not flee because she was losing blood fast, and she knew that in a few seconds, Bulalani would be on top of them, and there was absolutely nothing she could do about it. In that moment, Leandre made a choice. She leaned over and kissed her mother, telling her that she loved her very much. And then she unclipped her seatbelt and opened the door. Witnesses describe how the young woman had walked toward Bulalani with her head held high, a determined look on her face. She opened her mouth to say something to him, undoubtedly to ask him to stop. But he raised his gun and fired three shots at her. The marksman skills that the SAPS had given him were put to work, and Leandre was killed immediately. She collapsed onto the tar road as surrounding motorists screamed in horror at what they'd just witnessed. Then, Bulelani turned around and walked back to his car. Rita sat in the car, drifting in and out of consciousness. She could hear people shouting around her, and she'd heard the gunshots. She had no idea what was happening and where her daughter was. It seemed that no one realized there'd been someone else in the car, because as Bulalani fled the scene in his Mercedes-Benz, motorists scrambled from their cars to see if they could offer aid to Leandre, but no one approached the car. Rita heard people talking about what had happened, and that was how she'd learned that her daughter was dead. After fleeing the scene of the murder and attempted murder, Bulalani must have known that it was only a matter of time before his colleagues put two and two together and came after him, and he wasn't wrong. As soon as paramedics discovered Rita in the car and she told them who'd shot her and killed her daughter, she'd also instructed a police officer to call her husband, and as she was being stabilized by medics to be moved, she heard her husband's screams as he arrived at the scene and saw Leandre's body in the middle of the road. Through license plate recognition cameras, the SAPS were able to track the routes Bulalani was taking. It appeared that he was still on the road, and units were dispatched from stations along the route to apprehend him.
although the man had already done a huge amount of damage to so many lives, he was not finished with his reign of terror. Somewhere on the road between Mdansane, where Leandre's murder had taken place, and Perdi, which may have been Bulalani's intended destination, SAPS units caught up with him, and a high-speed car chase began. In a car headed in the opposite direction, 29-year-old clinic nurse Aluta Alota and her librarian friend Siasanga Dayamani, also 29, were headed home from work. They were probably chatting about the day and the weekend ahead, and probably didn't even see the Mercedes-Benz speeding up in the lane beside them with the police cars behind it. They may have already heard the sirens, but then, as Bulalani thought he saw a gap and pulled his car into their lane, they would have heard and seen absolutely nothing. As the car, travelling at an incredible speed, ploughed into them head-on. Both Aluta and Siasanga died on impact. Bulalani miraculously survived the car accident, but was in a serious condition. As paramedics stabilised him for transport, he was placed under arrest for the murder of Leandre Yuchels and the attempted murder of Rita Yuchels. Rita would undergo surgery as soon as she arrived at the hospital that day, and although she would spend weeks recovering, she did survive her physical injuries. The loss of her daughter was another matter entirely. Bulelani Manyakama was also treated for his injuries and awaited surgery as soon as he stabilized for multiple serious injuries sustained in the accident. He was placed under police guard in the ICU. The news of Leandre Yichel's murder broke the next morning, with headlines filled with tributes to the fallen boxing star. Reading some of those articles, I get a bit of a sick feeling in my stomach, with the victim-blaming that continued, even from the police spokesperson. The first few articles regarding Leandre's murder contained statements from the IPID and the SAPS, which included an acknowledgement that, quote, the deceased had made allegations of domestic violence against the accused and had allegedly taken out a protection order against him, end quote. Now, I realize they had to use the word allegation in regard to the domestic violence here, but I really feel like that could have been left out. After all, Leandrea's fears had very well been proven by the fact that she was now being referred to as the deceased. But it was the other part of their statement which was wholly incorrect that really annoys me. The SAPS spokesperson claimed that Leandra had been driving, first mistake because her mother was driving, when she saw Bulalani standing on the side of the road. The spokesperson said that she'd pulled her car over, got out and confronted him, and this is when he'd shot her. We already know from my description of the facts of the events that that was absolute bull. But also, it does a pretty good job of making Leandre the aggressor here. Words like 
confronted, only served to create the impression that she had sought out the interaction. And of course, with Bulelani having a protection order out against her too, that may have served to make it seem as though he was lawfully protecting himself against something. This narrative would change over the days that followed, with statements from SAPS shifting to simply acknowledge that one of their officers had been involved in a, quote, domestic dispute. But even this is incorrect and damaging language. This was not a dispute. This was not a couple having an argument. This was a predator who had hunted down this young woman and her mother because she had told him she no longer wanted to date him. And while none of this may seem to matter, it really does. The language people in positions of authority use around domestic violence matters, because it either helps to oppose or support victim-blaming. And there's another lesson in here. Don't believe anything published about an event in the first 24 to 48 hours, even if it's come out of the mouth of an SAPS officer. Although news outlets claim that Bulalani was due to appear in court on the 2nd of September, it doesn't ever really seem as though this was going to happen. He does not appear to have regained consciousness after the car accident, and he stayed in the ICU until the 1st of August when his body gave in and he passed away from his injuries. In some respects, perhaps this would have been easier for Leandre's family. They would not have had to face a lengthy trial, during which this man undoubtedly would have tried to drag Leandre's name through the mud for his own benefit. But they also didn't get any justice. They would never hear a judge pronounce him guilty or have the knowledge that he was sitting in prison for his crimes. But considering how much power and sway he seemed to have, perhaps that was all for the best. Unlike families of those murdered who have to deal with parole hearings and wondering if the offender is actually having an easy time of it in prison, Leandre's family know exactly where Bulalani is. And they know he's not coming back and neither is their daughter. Since Leandre's murder, her family have tried to slowly piece their shattered lives back together. They've continued to campaign against domestic violence and use Leandre's legacy as a strong, athletic, intelligent woman to underline that this really can happen to anyone. And herein lies the part of this case that left me feeling a little hopeless at the start. And I've realized, probably unfairly so. Leandre could have kicked most people's asses, let's face it. She was no shrinking violet. She was fit, strong, and trained to the hilt in disciplined methods of self-defense. But she was still a victim of firstly physical abuse and secondly murder. The murder happened because no protection order or any level of training in hand-to-hand combat would have made her bulletproof. And it also happened 
because her murderer was allowed to continue to have access to firearms after a protection order had been taken out against him. Could he have procured a firearm elsewhere, even if his service weapons had been confiscated? Of course. But at the very least, it would have made it a damn sight more difficult for him. And perhaps he wouldn't have been walking around with that untouchable attitude he seemed to have. I felt a bit hopeless when I first learned of this case, because I felt like, well, hell, if a woman like Leandre can be a victim of domestic violence, then we're all stuffed. But I think I've realized that her athletic capabilities actually make zero difference. And if I'm honest, me thinking that it should is actually a bit of victim-blaming too, which I recognize now. Domestic violence is not about violence, just like rape is not about sex. Domestic violence is based in fear and coercion. And no matter how physically or mentally strong you are, everyone is capable of falling victim to that at some time in their life. If Leandre had met Pulelani after she'd had a few healthy relationships and perhaps lived a bit more, he likely wouldn't have been able to draw her in that easily. She may have recognized his toxicity up front, but she didn't have anything to compare that to at that point. Leandre had many strengths, but she also had some vulnerabilities, just as we all do. And Bulelani identified and attacked those like the predator he was. The three main vulnerabilities he targeted were her inexperience in relationships, her depression diagnosis, and her deep love for her family. With the large age gap, the power dynamic was already swayed. Then he added in the love bombing and becoming a supposed support structure for her when she went through difficult bouts of depression. And then, when she started to want to leave, he threatened the thing she loved more than anything, her family. Leandre was strong and fit, but she wasn't capable of protecting everyone she loved at once. And so that insidious fear and that coercive control became far stronger than any combat tools she'd learned. They became the chains that bound her. Leandre's sporting achievements are absolutely relevant to who she was and what she stood for. And she should absolutely be an inspiration to everyone in what she achieved. But I no longer see them as relevant in the fact that she suffered domestic violence. Those are two very separate things. Leandre Yuckels was a phenomenal athlete, a brilliant mind, and an amazing human being. And she was also a victim of domestic violence. Those two things can be true at once. I don't particularly like using human suffering as a lesson, like 
Let's see what we can learn from this person's death so we can all feel better about ourselves. But I do think that we can learn something here. I did, at least. I learned that somewhere in my mind, despite all the facts and information I've gathered through the years about domestic violence, I still lean toward what should the victim be doing to protect themselves. Instead of asking, why the hell would you hunt down a woman you profess to love, make her life a living nightmare, and then gun her and her mother down on the side of the road? And this is also an important distinction, I think, when we look at other instances of domestic violence that are not a man versus woman situation, in which the physical strength may lay entirely with the victim. Women who abuse men, for instance, or in gay relationships, or in child-to-parent abuse situations. It's this same but the victim is physically strong mentality that allows those situations to fly under the radar. Because we forget that all abuse starts psychologically. And that is where the real power dynamic lies. If we're talking about mental fortitude, though, I cannot help but think about Leandre's final moments. As she unbuckled her seatbelt and kissed her mother goodbye, she knew she was not coming back. She knew that her fate lay in Bulalani's hands that day. But she damn well wasn't going to cower in her car waiting for it. Instead, she did two things. She kept him away from her mother, who was already so badly injured, she made sure that if he was going to kill her, she would be standing up and looking him in the eye when he did. Some may think this was a fool's errand, but really, she had few other options. He was coming. She could try to run. He'd just shoot her in the back. And then he would go back for her mother. Perhaps she still held some small hope that she could talk him down. But really, I think she knew it had gone way beyond that. Despite the completely unnecessary and tragic nature of the entire situation, there's something about Leandre having chosen to go face to face with that coward that day that makes my heart surge a little. It was her last stuff you to a man who'd made her life a living hell. But maybe that's just me pulling at straws, trying to find something that isn't completely hopeless in this horrible example of the worst things people can do to other human beings. I don't know. Leandre Yerkels, Aluta Alota, and Sia Sanga Daimani. Rest gently.
if you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on Spotify or the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Live Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon. Thanks again to this week's sponsor, Change in One Generation. To hear amazing stories of change, go to changepodcasts.co.za. I'm sure you'll enjoy the show.